Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. In today's episode, I will be recapping the third episode of the second season of Your Honor on Showtime, an episode simply called Part 13. I will also be discussing a new comedy thriller, Murder of the Week series on Peacock. Peacock did just announce that they've picked up 20 million subscribers. I don't know if that's a good metric or a bad metric, but apparently it made the stock market happy. Although I'm currently paying about a dollar a month for Peacock. So I can't imagine this is very profitable for them, but I'll take the content while it lasts and check out my commentary on what is happening with the streaming wars in the previous episode of this podcast. I also recapped The Last of Us, most recent episode of that, and we will be continuing to recap that show week to week. If you did catch that recap early, you missed out on additional conversation where speaking of Peacock, my sister and I not only further discussed the episode of The Last of Us, where one of the main characters died, by the way, but also discussed the new slasher film that premiered on Peacock about a week ago now, two weeks ago, called Sick, a slasher film that takes place during the pandemic. I was not a big fan of that film, but you can hear that conversation. And we do not spoil the ending, which is the only kind of twist in the film, which is not that good. If you are a big fan of slashers, check that out. Otherwise, hmm. But speaking of Peacock, there is a big investment this year, and there will be many new series coming. And just this week, the entertaining action horror comedy Violent Night from this Christmas has just premiered there recently. So if you were wanting to catch up with that, it's now available on Peacock, as well as I think just today, the very interesting, very long, but very satisfying, in my opinion, film Tar, starring Kate Blanchett who just got an Academy Award nomination for this very role, as well as the film being nominated for Best Picture and quite a few other nominations as well. And that film, if you were wanting to catch up on some of these Oscar nominees, the um, nominations just came out this week, by the way, and uh, we'll probably have some kind of conversation where we get into some of these nominees. The most nominated film was Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is available right now on Showtime, by the way, for anybody who's listening to this because of this Showtime series easily catch up on everything everywhere all at once a film that i truly did love and you can hear my review of it in this podcast feed much earlier this year when i uh, saw it in the movie theaters so i'll be having a conversation somewhere in this feed where i will tell you where you can catch up on these academy award nominated films in the very near future we will continue to recap the last of us in this same feed as well as continuing to cover this showtime series your honor and of course, Your Honor will be running for 10 episodes up until the middle of March, at which point we will then start to cover Yellow Jackets, also on Showtime. And just announced this very week, HBO will be premiering the next season of Succession on the exact same premiere date as Yellow Jackets. So just as we have this Showtime and HBO series running in parallel right now, The Last of Us and Your Honor, we will also have Succession and Yellow Jackets running in parallel as well. If you are re-watching those shows in anticipation of their new seasons, we do have coverage of both Yellow Jackets and Succession in this same podcast feed, so check those episodes out. And of course, subscribe so you get notifications when all of this content becomes available. Okay, before we get into the breakdown of this 13th overall episode of this season, of this series, Your Honor, third episode of this season, I did have a couple of recommendations I wanted to bring up. First of all, on Hulu, Available to binge the whole entire thing all at once is a series called Extraordinary. I've seen three episodes of this so far. I believe there's nine, maybe eight, nine in total. 
I found this to be very, very entertaining. The premise of this is a British woman. She's 25 years old. She lives in the world where all of a sudden everyone starts to get superpowers. And most people manifest those powers at around the time they turn 18. She is one of the very rare people who even at 25 has never found her powers. And then what this leads to is a blend of different genres. It's a comedy, obviously. You have people with superpowers, but it's not really a superhero type show, although maybe it will incorporate more of those elements as time goes by. But mostly what it feels like is one of these common British comedy genre of these young adults who are still trying to find their way in the world. They're still kind of losers. They're living on the fringes of society. They're they're underachievers. This is, a, as I mentioned, pretty frequent genre of film and TV series, especially in Britain. But adding this science fiction element to it makes it feel fresh. Plus, it's just very funny. The comedy here is all character driven, but exploits the strange conceit that people start to develop these superpowers in a couple of very interesting ways. First of all, is the fact that she doesn't have the superpower, so she really feels like an outsider. And everyone either criticizes her, like she's a slacker, she hasn't really figured this out. Apparently, you can go to special programs and they'll help you find your powers. You're not trying hard enough. So all of this feels like a metaphor for being a young adult, not having figured things out yet. Especially if you kind of were given all these privileges, you just feel like you're squandering the opportunities that you were given. It works on all of these levels as that type of show. But on top of that, it has this added comedic value of the fact that people do suddenly have all these superpowers. But how practical is that? Either people are using them for very inane and stupid reasons or, or ways, uh, not exploiting them in any interesting way, or it becomes downright detrimental. It basically makes having a relationship or trying to lead any kind of semblance of a normal life almost impossible because of these superpowers. So it becomes an actual detriment. But regardless of that, people are so proud of their powers. They're so unable to quit using them because it's like this point of pride, even though it was just something that was just handed to them. So in many ways, it becomes this metaphor for the way that we get addicted to the things that we just inherited. We act like these were things that we earned. And then simultaneously, even when they become detrimental to us, we cannot quit them because we're like addicted to our current life situation, whether you're over-invested in your job or over-invested in your social media presence, there's many, many metaphors that map onto this, but I find it exploits all of this for comedy in interesting ways. And I'm only two episodes in, but I very much enjoyed this. And I will watch it through to the end of season one. I do hear that there is a strong finale to the season, so I'm looking forward to that. These are short episodes, so it should be relatively easy to catch up on. There have been made available all at once. And Disney, uh, Hulu's parent company, has just announced uh, within a day of this show premiering, I guess they got strong numbers, they now already greenlit a season two, which will go into production pretty quickly. All this is to say that if you have been burned by following some of these new shows, and I was just talking about this last week, how all these shows that people may be invested in have all been unceremoniously dumped after just a single season, Disney is pivoting away from that and saying, you know what, we have given this thing a green light for season two. So maybe one more reason to give the show a shot and make that an investment of interest. My second recommendation and a much more enthusiastic one, even beyond my pretty enthusiastic recommendation for Extraordinary is for Peacock's Poker Face. What's it like? Always knowing the truth. There's nothing mystical about it. I could just tell. When anyone is lying. Yeah. 
I know what you did, you psycho. You're gonna find Charlie Kale, and you're gonna bring it to me. You live on the road, right? What's it like? Leave everything behind. Start fresh. I got wolves on my fender. Oh, I gotta keep moving. Holy, holy. It wasn't an accident. I, I think there's been a murder. Look out! I have been kind of a death magnet. Trying to figure out what happened. You watch too much Dateline. I could tell she was lying. What is it? It's a woman's intuition? No, it's not like a tampon commercial, okay? It's a real thing. There has not been an instant green light for season two to this show, but I would guarantee you that this is going to perform well, especially by the standards of Peacock. And we'll almost certainly get picked up for an, another season. There's four episodes that were made available immediately. I've seen the first two. Episode one is available to everybody, by the way. Even if you don't have a Peacock subscription, even the free version of Peacock gives you free access to the first episode. And you can even just watch it on Apple TV as a free play on Amazon Prime. Everywhere pretty much has the first episode available for free streaming. And this is a terrific hour of television. Like I always complain about how pilots are pretty bad. This is an exceptionally excellent first episode of this show. It's called Dead Man's Hand. This show, by the way, was developed by Ryan Johnson, who just made those uh, Knives Out films, The Glass Onion, which of course have been a huge hit on Netflix just recently. For me, I had my issues with Glass Onion. I also had similar issues with maybe a little, a little too much snarkiness in his tone in both of those Knives Out films. But I have none of those reservations with this first episode of the show, which he's developed, but also this specific episode, which he has written and directed. This has the framing device of the old Columbo movies and episodes where the murder is committed at the beginning of the episode. We see the murder committed. We know exactly who did it. We know exactly how they did it. And then in those Columbo episodes, he would come investigate and little by little, by questioning people and finding holes in their stories, he would start to piece together what actually happened. And we're along for the ride. That's kind of the pleasure of that framing device. Very similarly, the murder occurs at the beginning of this episode, and what we discover soon thereafter, we flash back to the day before the murder, and we get introduced to our protagonist, who's played by Natasha Lyonne from Orange is the New Black and the American Pie movies, and of course, Russian Doll, of course, on Netflix as well, just to name a few things she's been in. And she's living out, out of the trailer. She seems to be just squeaking by. This is taking place out in Las Vegas. And the setup of the show is that she is basically a human lie detector. She can always, always, without fail, tell you when someone is lying. We find out her backstory. She had used this to gamble. And it has eventually gotten her into this not great circumstance that she currently is in in her life. But I don't need to spoon feed you the setup here because, once again, this is such a great pilot. In that flashback before the murder, we find out about her backstory in a very entertaining way, by the way. None of this is like medicine. This is expertly directed and written throughout. We discover how she ended up in the circumstance she's in, how her powers work or how she uses those powers. And of course, over the course of this episode, she is using those powers to discover what's happened to this murdered woman at the beginning of the episode, who turns out to be one of her friends. And simultaneously, she's been pulled into a 
gambling sting operation, which turns out to be not unrelated, as you would expect. And even better that by the end of the episode, we have even had the whole season, the, the, the arc of the season defined, the stakes are high, and she's on the run. And boy, what a blast this episode of TV was. I cannot wait to watch more of this show. This is exactly what Peacock probably needs. I can't wait to see the rest of those episodes that are available. Episode two, it becomes very much like a procedural. We see her do her thing again. She's in a completely different location, completely different cast of characters. It allows them to bring in some pretty famous names just for these, almost like an anthology, right? Because it's week to week, like you would expect from a murder she wrote or something. You could always have guest stars. They only have to be there for a few days. And it very much is following that type of formula. And in the background, there is still this pursuit happening. There still is this bigger conspiracy being uncovered and over the course of these shows. And like I mentioned, I only seen two episodes. I assume that will continue going forward. I have huge amounts of confidence based on what I've seen that this is going to be a very, very satisfying series. And uh, I love it. I, I really loved this first episode. And like I mentioned to anybody out there, whether you have Peacock or not, you can watch this first episode, which is like a perfect little mini movie. So check it out. It's definitely worth watching. Okay. And finally, with that all out of the way, let's get into this latest episode of Your Honor, part 13. When Rocco died. When Adam killed Rocco. When Adam killed Rocco. Mm -hmm. I drove him to the police station. He was going to turn himself in that night. But then I saw you there and I turned around. Everything that I did, everything that happened flowed from that one moment, that one decision. If we had come forward Right then, told the truth. Adam killed Rocco. What would you have done? In the cold open, we immediately are with Michael after the, his discovery of his grandson. We see this beautiful nighttime photography of the French Quarter. Olivia has somehow has psychic powers or is just <laughs> has tracking devices all over Michael, knows exactly where he is and exactly what he's doing. And Olivia calls him up and says, Hi, Grandpa. She is loving messing with Michael here. Michael tells Olivia that he's not made for this. She says, I know exactly what you can and cannot do. I know what you're capable of. I just need you to be you. He asks her, well, why? Why me? And she says, because you have relationships that no one else has. And all she needs from him right now is for him to love that baby. So once again, we still don't know the shape of this full conspiracy, but she does seem to be fully aware that all she's trying to do is to get Michael close to the Baxters and get that information, what it is. She doesn't even know what she's looking for. This might just be a fishing expedition at this point, or it might be more orchestrated than that. We still need more clarity on her plan, as does Michael. But maybe, and here's the thing that I like about the way this show's progressing right now, maybe it's better that Michael does not know her plan, because of course, if he knows, he can't be guileless. He can't ingratiate himself with the Baxters if he knows what the end game might be. We also see him at work. He's getting better with that butcher knife. Is this foreshadowing? Remains to be seen. And later that week, he goes to the park where he meets with Sophia and sees the baby. Pretty quickly, this must be right by the hotel, I would assume, Carlos sees Michael and his sister and starts asking a lot of questions. Michael gets uncomfortable and takes off. 
Carlos says he's going to follow with Michael to make amends after chasing him off. That's what he says to Sophia, although that's really not his intention. They have an altercation. And Michael finally says to Carlo, don't you worry about karma? And Carlo says, it hasn't caught up with me yet. Michael does remind him that Kofi's brother tried to kill him. And ouch, Carlo says, but he missed. Of course, that's the bullet that killed Adam. Michael absorbs this, but doesn't take it fully lying down. He just says to him, you know, you remind me of, you remind me of Harry the Hook. And then he wanders off. This, of course, is a seed planted in Carlo's mind. By the way, early in this episode, we'll get around to the Baxters in general, but we see Gina holding the baby and feeding it. So mystery solved <laughs> based on our previous two weeks conversations with Sona and my sister. They do indeed know about this baby, as I suspected. They made very good points that it is not made overt. You would assume at some point these parents would say, well, I want her to move back into the house with us so we can help her with that baby. They are absolutely correct. Those words were never spoken. But at the same time, I just felt like it would be a terrible, terrible plotting miscalculation to keep this baby a secret, especially if it doesn't give any kind of dramatic payoff. So here we are in episode three, believe it or not, of the season to finally have confirmation that they do know that the baby exists. Olivia wants a debrief from Michael after she meets with Sophia and Carlo, and he's reluctant to give her much information. She says, why are you trying to protect them? Why aren't you helping me out? He says to her, why do you care so much? And she really just seems to be trying to get any kind of lead that might lead her to maybe a weakness in the family. It's purely fishing at this point, it seems to be. But she does make a good point. Why don't you care at all about some level of justice? Michael, of course, is extremely jaded and says to her, do you actually think justice can be served? And that is one of the themes here in this episode, and maybe of the show in general, is this idea of can justice actually be served by all these systems that supposedly are built to give us the appearance of justice? Later in the episode, Olivia also meets with Detective Costello. She's trying to get them to be partners. What's her plan? TBD. But what she mentions is that I'm having trouble motivating Michael. So I need you to motivate Michael. Of course, Detective Costello is still a little sore for the fact that Michael, quote unquote, got away with the original crime. Olivia is trying to convince her that there's a much bigger fish to fry here, and she wants to bring her in as a partner. Meanwhile, over in the Baxters, this is a very Baxter-heavy episode. Jimmy takes Frankie and Carlo out to the waterfront and describes this waterfront casino and hotel Fantasia, the Baxter district. Carlo's not impressed. He says, can we come back when this is all built? But Jimmy wants to tell him, look, we built everything in our lives, and I want you to have that same pride, knowing that you built something. And it's interesting that he wants the Baxter name to be associated with this theoretical rejuvenated district in the county rather than probably its current connotation. And once again, this idea of legacy is also going to be relevant for this episode and probably this season of the show as well. This is the first time that in this episode, but probably not the first time we've seen throughout this series, that Jimmy does dream of a time when they can be legit. As I mentioned, Gina was with Sophia earlier in the episode. And during that conversation, she mentions to Sophia that she wants the baby to be baptized so that these two Roccos, her Rocco and now this new baby Rocco, can be reunited in heaven. Sophia is a non-believer and finds this idea morbid as well. But she knows her mom's not going to relent on this. Jimmy heads out to meet with Charlie, who's now mayor, of course, and Sheena tags along. And he says, wonderful, sarcastically. Before they arrive, Charlie gets advice that he should just rubber stamp this deal. It was approved under the pr previous administration. It's not going to blow back on him. He can just walk away and not fight this fight if he doesn't need to. Charlie decides to put down his foot. 
He tells the Baxters that he's going to reopen the bidding, says it's only fair. The people who voted for him are not getting anything out of this deal. So he basically needs to have this pot sweetened. Of course, his concerns are political. Their concerns are more tangible. And this is an interesting scene. It plays out these three different forms of power. We see Jimmy trying to play nice. He knows that he's so close to the finish line. He just wants to say, well, Charlie, what can we do to make this thing work out? Remember, if I'm your friend, I can help. You know, you can get reelected. We can become friends. I can do some fundraising for you. All of this is implied, of course. Gina, on the other hand, of course, immediately says, we can also be the worst enemies you can have. And throws in his face, I know that you helped out trying to get that deal across the street at the bar. Big Mo wants to buy that bar, and I saw you there. So threatening blackmail and intimidation, two very different styles. And meanwhile, you see Charlie, who's also trying to push his own agenda and also knows full well that this deal that they won without competition was because the only other bid on the table, it's implied, was someone who was assassinated by the Baxters and just disappeared the day he was supposed to be making this bid. And Charlie gets to say, well, I'm doing it for the people. So maybe what he simply wants to do is get a deal in place that makes him look good politically, even if he has to, in the end, give them what they want. And once again, as I mentioned, a very interesting presentation of these different mechanisms of power. Following up on this, he does go, Charlie does go and visit Michael at his house, at his mother's mother-in-law's house. This is where he mentions to him that he doesn't want to give the Baxters what they want. It's implied that they've murdered people to get this deal done and then scared everybody else off of making any kind of competing bids. But Charlie is in general concerned. What did the Baxters have on him? Has he said, has Michael said anything to the Baxters that might blow back on Charlie or anybody for that matter? Michael says to him that Charlie is his only friend, which is true. And he would do anything to protect him, possibly true. But he's also hiding a big thing from Charlie here. So we're seeing that Michael is getting better at telling the truth and telling a lie at the same time. Something he was pretty skilled at in season one, by the way. But maybe there is a hint here that there's more cunning here with Michael than at first meets the eye. Maybe Olivia saw this in him when she said, I know exactly what you're capable of. Maybe she means, I know you're capable of things that you don't actually think you are capable of doing, Michael. Later, we see Gina and Jimmy, and they have a pretty ugly confrontation. Gina is trying her hardest to have the club sale revoked across the street. She does not want Big Mo moving in so close to them. She starts to throw in Jimmy's face that the name Conti used to mean something in this town. If this hotel had that name on it, no one would mess with us. Attacking the way that Jimmy has managed this crime syndicate that he's inherited through her family line. Jimmy once again points out the fact that he's got much bigger plans and that her petty vendettas are going to ruin it all. This gets physical. He has to drag her physically to one of their rooms and he tries to calm her down by holding her. She mocks him for not doing enough because he at one point says, what should I do? Should I have Frankie go and kill Big Mo? Is that what you would have done? And she goes, hey, why don't I get Frankie to take your place in the bedroom also? This makes him release her and Jean is always going for the jugular. Jimmy, with all of this heavy on his mind, runs into Carlo, who's checking out the security cameras. Of course, Michael's mention of Harry the Hook has been weighing on him. And he mentions to his dad, did I just get lucky winning my case? And his dad tries to brush it off saying, well, don't worry about it. There's no double jeopardy. But of course, Carlo's done his due diligence and checked out Harry the Hook. And it turns out he was convicted decades later for the same crime, because it turned out in the eyes of the court, he never was found innocent in the first place because the judge was compromised. And here we have the exact same circumstance with Michael as well. I'll have to ask Sona when we catch, catch up as to whether this is true. His dad asks him, 
well, where'd you hear this information? Where'd you get the story? And Carla points at the security camera and says, that person right over there, it's Michael getting a drink at the bar. Jimmy and Frankie go to pay Michael a visit. And here we have another really excellent scene. He tells Jimmy, you know what? Adam was going to turn himself in the, that day at the police station and everything that happened after here, all these terrible things that have happened, all came from that one decision. So he says to Jimmy, if my son had just been honest and said everything, what would you have done? When you saw me at the police station, what did you see? A detective was speaking to you. Then you watched me lose my son. Did I react differently than you'd expect a man to react? No. And why did you choose to see me as a monster? Maybe you wanted to walk out of that police station and just have it all go away. Perhaps I was your excuse. You would have killed my son. Jimmy tells him he was a kid. He was scared. I wouldn't have killed him for that. It's not his fear that got him killed. It's your fear, Michael. Your fear got him killed. Now, I very much like this scene because it leaves this very ambiguous space. Is Jimmy just messing with Michael? These two great actors are just trying to read each other here. Jimmy might be messing with Michael, but maybe he also wants to believe that I would be that better person, but would, would he have been? So there's a lot of ambiguity here. And we can, in this moment, wonder, well, what is the point of this conversation? What are they really telling each other? What do they really believe about this themselves? I like this kind of ambiguity, and I would have left it exactly as it is. But of course, <laughs> that's not what they decide to do. Immediately as he walks away, Frankie asks, is that true that you would not have gone after his son? And Jimmy responds, I would have killed him with my own hands. So undercutting all that ambiguity, once again, I would have preferred the ambiguity. Just my personal taste. Meanwhile, in the world of Big Mo, speaking of Big Mo and her intersections with the Baxters and Gina's vendetta against her. She's worried about handing all this money over to little Mo. She reminds him, remember the last time I entrusted you with something that was really important? She's talking about Eugene here. She mentions that you lost him. Apparently Mo or Monique does not know where Eugene is, that he's actually staying with her sister. Little Mo with his cash goes to visit his aunt and his cousin. She's happy to see him, but she doesn't like seeing that big duffel bag. She knows what that means. She knows what her sister's up to. And little Mo means, yeah, she's doing well. She's actually trying to buy this club. She has a snarky response. I guess they don't mind that the club money is coming from drug money. And they go and have dinner. Eugene, of course, is there. And uh, his artwork has become more positive. He has this new character. His teacher asks, oh, who's that character now? He says the character's name is Kofi, of course. Just showing that his brother's death is still on his mind. And another reminder, when one of the lockers is slammed, you see Eugene flinch, still haunted by the sound of that gunshot. Monique is still trying to close that club deal and finds out that Gina has tried to cut in front of her and has even offered the owner more money. She says, I'm either going to make this deal with you or with your kids after you're dead. This poor guy, this club owner, is between a rock and a hard place. He's probably under the threat of death in both regards, <laughs> from Gina and from Monique. And he says, okay, I'll do it, but can you at least match her price? And she's going to give me cash by Friday. Monique calls up Lil Mo. They've been waiting all day to make this drug deal. If this guy had just not been doing travel baseball, that money would be gone. But it turns out that they've been waiting all day to deliver this money. So he still has it. And she says, bring it back. 
I need the extra money to close this deal. Little Motel's Trey, that's it. We're going back, deal's off. Trey is freaking out at this point. He did not want to be a middleman. And now all of a sudden, he's worried that this guy is going to come at him if this deal doesn't come through. This drug dealing baseball coach, this leads to a physical altercation that gets completely out of hand. At one point, Lil Mo throws Trey through a glass window. This attracts the attention of some cops that are picking up dinner nearby. When the police officers try to break them up, they accidentally break one of their noses, which now you have to assume these guys are definitely going to jail. They've caused some property damage by breaking that window and have even inadvertently attacked a police officer. Luckily for everybody involved, Eugene was there and escapes with Little Mo's phone and a duffel bag full of cash, most importantly. Eventually, he's pacing around, I believe, in his aunt's house, and then Big Mo calls. I am pretty sure Monique does not know that Eugene is staying with her sister. So it might be a shock if he answers that phone, but probably can't ignore the call either. So there's a lot of suspense about this specific circumstance. Will Eugene somehow save the day? Will they be forced to buy the heroin? Or will that money end up back in the hands of Monique so that she can buy that club? This is probably the most nebulous <laughs> circumstance in the whole show at this moment. Surprisingly, more stakes here than I anticipated based on season one. At the end of the episode, Michael meets with Sophia. He meets her at her, her hotel room at night, but the baby has already fallen asleep. She tells him that her mom wants the baby christened. And he mentions that Adam had also been christened, even though it was against his wishes. He fought with his wife about it, since he is also a non-believer. Michael's wife at the time wondered, why did he fight so hard? If he didn't even believe, then why was this something he decided to fight against so much? And Sophia asks if he feels bad that he gave in. And he says, in retrospect, he only wishes that he'd given in more often. Maybe all that additional friction was unnecessary, considering that she's no longer with him. Sophia has to leave the room, and the baby wakes up. Michael goes over to soothe him. And this is the first time we see him physically interacting with the baby, who seems to be calmed by his presence. Good baby acting here, by the way, with the way he looks at the approaching Cranston, and then his eyes shift over as someone else arrives. We hear a door in the background, and we assume it's Sophia coming back, but it's not. It's actually Jimmy. Jimmy's entered the apartment. And he's caught Michael there. And we end the episode on this pretty amazing shot. Here we have these two adversaries, both looking down on their grandson together. And here we have an episode where these two people had literally had a conversation about which one of their sons should have died or should have paid the price for what had happened. And literally talking about how Adam had killed Rocco and how Jimmy would have basically killed Adam, given the chance. And now here they are, suddenly allies, side by side, taking care of this baby. So these sons have basically been like merged together physically, embodied in this child. So how did I feel about all this? I thought this season of the show so far has proven itself to be a better show than it was in season one, honestly. It's deeply exploring these ideas of power, corruption, family, and loss. The heart-pumping suspense, for the most part, has dissipated. But I actually have empathy for the situation for almost everyone here on the show, Michael has betrayed his principles to try and save his son, and now is paying the consequences for that, but now wants to redeem himself through this grandchild. Jimmy wants to be legit so that his daughter and his grandson will live in the world where their name is not synonymous with being criminals. Charlie had to play dirty to get elected, but now wants to be an honorable man in a very corrupt, notoriously corrupt city, but he's already dirty. So can he ever get the dirt off? Big Mo wants to buy this club, which represents this stain because of what happened to her father, how he was treated there years before. 
but also maybe just wants to go legit as well. And this is a step in that direction. But is this all going to go up in flames because of these connections back to the underworld, as well as this family that might be exposing her right now via this blown heroin deal? As I said, I have sympathy for almost everybody in this circumstance, but not so much for Gina. Gina wants things to be the way she wants them to be. She wants them also to be the way they were, her family business, the way it was, and the respect and fear that it used to elicit in the community. And those family traditions as well, the baptism just representing this culture that she's hanging on to. And the question becomes, is that going to be the winning philosophy here at the end? It is possible that Big Mo and Michael and Jimmy fall by the wayside and Gina rises triumphant, her and the grandchild for her to parent into another generation of exactly the same issues. That would be a bleak ending to this series, but it is possible at this point. Also, it's interesting that, that they have developed the Big Mo character this season, and it's an interesting perspective to bring into the show. And I'm going to assume that her stakes are going to increase, and she's only tangentially tied into the Michael Baxter's drama right now via Charlie and via the antagonism she feels to the Baxters. But I assume the fact that they're de developing this so much indicates that there is going to be some broader endgame. Her story is going to be more tightly coupled to their their outcomes. I still am not sure what the shape of that endgame is and still not sure what Olivia's broader plan is. But I'm still very interested. And week to week, I find the show to be very interesting, just exploring these topics in greater detail. There's plenty of time for more of that suspense and drama and those cliffhangers we saw in season one. So how are you all enjoying this? If you watch season one for those shock twists and those weekly cliffhangers, is this satisfying to you? I know we're only three episodes in, so maybe we shouldn't judge too much. This show may very well get to have the same pace as season one, or maybe it will just continuously pick up pace throughout the rest of the season. It is 10 episodes, which of course, there's no reason to throw it all in the beginning of the season. As a matter of fact, I'm watching Breaking Bad and those episodes really don't get into those real huge, shocking twist endings until the last two or three episodes per season. This could be a very similar pacing to that, but it is a different tempo than season one. So are you still enjoying this if you did enjoy season one? Are you enjoying it in a different way like Sona and I are? Let us know your feedback at needssomeintroduction at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing your comments and we'll share them here on the show if you'd like. In next week's scenes, Charlie asks, why are you hanging out with the Baxters to Michael? Michael responds that they have a grandchild together. <laughs> and Charlie says, you're kidding. <laughs> I need the audio sample of Isaiah Whitlock Jr. saying, you're kidding. It should become a meme. It's, it's a great little piece of audio. Meanwhile, it looks like Jimmy is less and less comfortable with having Michael around. And they seem to have at least one confrontation here in the episode. They're in tuxedos. So I assume this is the day of the christening. And meanwhile, the saga of Lil Mo, Big Mo, Eugene, and that giant bag of cash continues. As I mentioned in this recap, there's probably more stakes <laughs> attached to that deal than anywhere else. Because, for example, we do not think that Jimmy's going to kill Michael in the third episode of this season. So those stakes seem to be relatively low. No matter how antagonistic that relationship gets, it's just going to have to continue. Meanwhile, we do not know what's going to happen. Is Lil Mo going to get out of jail? Is he going to stay in jail? Is Eugene going to reveal himself to Big Mo? <laughs> that is like a storyline that could actually have huge stakes week to week because uh, anybody's neck is on the line there. And that's all coming next week. So yeah, check out this weekend. We will have yet another recap episode of The Last of Us. 
that is an extremely downbeat show, which I think, I think based on the trailers, will have a few rays of humor and humanity in this current episode. And I'm very, very much looking forward to that. It's a very, very well-produced show with an extremely grim tone so far. It's only two episodes in also, but I am looking forward to expanding the scope of that story, adding new characters, and maybe just exploring the human side of surviving the apocalypse. <laughs> it doesn't sound that uplifting, but there's got to be some silver lining, or at least I need one to watch that show. So stay tuned. That recap will come later in the weekend. And we'll be discussing some other shows that we'll be covering throughout February and March as well, leading up to our next big week-to-week -week watches of Succession and Yellow Jackets. Two shows, maybe two of the most highly anticipated shows of the year easily. I mean, The Last of Us probably is on that list as well. We're getting a lot of content early in the year, so it should be another year. Just chock a block full of things to watch. And we'll be here to help you decide what to watch and watch it along with you. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon. He and I have a grandchild. You're kidding.